Never break a mirror. Do not step upon a crack. Keep new shoes off of the table. And never paint your front door black. Leave tailside pennies on the ground. Shoot black cats out of your stride. Keep umbrellas closed while you're indoors. Throw your clock out when it's died. Be wary of a flock of birds that flies from left to right. And if ghosts send shivers down your spine, don't whistle in the night. Pay attention to the ladders. Walk around and not beneath. And don't forget to lock your doors. It's Friday the 13th. I'm Holly. I'm John. And we We would be dead. Happy Friday the 13th. Yay. The best day. This week, in honor of this luckiest unlucky of all days, we brought our editor and composer, John Cadity, on to help me tell the story of a very real murder that was inspired by a lot of very not real murders. That's right, right? Correct. (laughs) Yeah. Confused? Well, don't worry. It'll all make sense very soon. Today, we're talking about the ultimate horror fanboy and deeply troubled teen, Mark Branch. And we're very lucky this week, you guys, because John is a horror movie connoisseur. (laughs) I would give you that title. I do enjoy horror movies. And you're a virtual treasure trove of little known facts and trivia when it comes to them. So I'm really looking forward to everything you're going to have to add this week. And for those of you who don't know this, John is also Leslie's husband. (laughs) Yes. So how's Leslie? She's good. Her and the baby, (gasps) Bowie, are very healthy. Um, They're establishing their routine right now, and everything's going great. Excellent. We're both very tired. You know what? (laughs) Then you're doing it right. You're supposed to be tired. So, yeah, guys, Leslie had the baby. We're so excited. So um, we drug John over here to cover for her. (laughs) (laughs) Leslie says hello. Well, we miss her so much. Our fiends have been asking about all of you guys, and there are so many well wishes to send your way. Everybody is thinking of you and so excited. And we really appreciate that. Thank you. I will pass that along. So having a newborn is exciting and wonderful, but also exhausting. So I'm willing to bet poor Leslie is feeling a little pale. Uh, a little bit, yeah. A little bit? Yeah. feel like a little bit of an under-eye circle going on. A little tired. Yeah. You know. Am I right? Yeah. A little sluggish. Poor thing. Poor Leslie. I completely understand that feeling. It happens. I call it looking like a swamp witch. But for Leslie, she's just a tired, beautiful little queen. She's still perfect. Of course. She's just tired and perfect. Obviously. But you know what? I've tried everything to combat those things. The paleness, the under eye circles. And the only thing I've ever known to actually work is a nice cold compress of... Validation, a hill worth dying on. Very good. Well done. (laughs) Leslie's going to be so proud. I I hope I did you proud, babe. (laughs) I know she's proud. 
And best of all, our fiends can give us all a little bit of that validation free of charge. But how? <gasps> but how, you must be asking yourself. John, John hears this every I week. Asked, yeah, I asked that. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> that was fun. Well, I will tell you. Simply head on over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really is the only way to move this podcast forward. Ratings and reviews equal attention, attention equals support, and support equals more and better content for all of you. Hmm. Yay. But if you just can't wait for more We Would Be Dead in Your Life, don't worry, you don't have to. You can support us over on Patreon. Patreon. There, for just a few dollars a month, you will gain access to our entire catalog of 30-minute horror movies. And if Leslie had given birth just a week later, this would have been one of them, Friday the 13th. <laughs> it almost was. We'll still do it. We'll do it for you guys It'll next. come around again. It absolutely will. So you'll get uh, our whole catalog of 30-minute horror movies. You'll get our special mini-sodes, our weekly after show, Host Mortem, which is available in both video and audio formats. Maybe you want to see our faces. Maybe you don't. Both are okay. You'll also get a special gift in the mail from us, giveaways, merch deals, and on-air toast dedicated just to you and more. In all honesty, we are here thanks to our patrons, so come on over and be part of the We Would Be Dead family. It's nice here. So comfy. I like it. And if all of that is a little too much for you, you can simply follow us on social media. We are at Would Be Dead Pod anywhere and everywhere you get your content. You can like our posts, share our posts, like and share our posts. That's a good one. Nice. Leave us a comment, post about your favorite episode. Let us know when you're listening. Tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell the 20-something dude down the block who lives in his mom's garage, but somehow also has thousands of dollars worth of expensive movie memorabilia. What's his name? Sean. Sean. Okay. I see it. Then... Your friends and Sean can become fiends. We'll stay away from Sean for the most part, probably. Sean's happy where he is. Yeah, leave him in the garage. Yeah. He doesn't need to come. Nope. He can, like, zoom in. It'll be fine. <laughs> and then we can all hang out together or just wave at him as we walk by. That's for the best. Probably is yeah. for all of our best. I think that's all I have in the way of announcements for this week. John, do you have anything to add before we begin? No? Not particularly. All right, then. On with the show. It takes a lot to cancel Halloween. I only remember it happening once in my entire lifetime. In 2012, after Hurricane Sandy ripped apart the Jersey Shore, tumbling whole boardwalk roller coasters into the sea and sweeping away houses as though they sat on a real-life Monopoly board. For those of you who don't know, Mon Monopoly is a model of Atlantic City. Halloween was threatened to be canceled. Oh, no. Yes. We had just moved into a new house that spring. I remember my daughter was 18 months old, and that's the year she dressed up as Olivia the pig. Nice. Yes. Governor Christie had just told us to stay off the beach while digging his toes into the sand. <laughs> what a time that was. So when it was suggested that we cancel Halloween, New Jersey said, you get a delay at best. Shattered as we were, a couple days later, the kids went out trick-or-treating. There may have been fewer doors and porch lights, but we made it work. You just don't cancel Halloween. In 1988, the town of Greenfield, Massachusetts, came just about as close as you can get to canceling Halloween. Having kids trick-or-treat in the afternoon on the 30th, so the 30th was a Sunday, and they said Sunday afternoon sounds safe, so go then. Mm -hmm. Nobody did anything on Halloween. 
They canceled all major costumed events for adults, and the local movie theater even canceled its showings of Halloween 4, which had just been released a week prior, so it's a pretty big week for that movie. And this was all in fear that their own masked killer might make an appearance on that night. Because it's true that not even a hurricane can cancel Halloween. But a killer can. And that's a different story altogether. Last October, I told you all the story of Charlie Brandt, a man I consider to be the closest thing to a real-life Michael Myers possible. And John and I were just talking about this. It's so strange to me that he existed in a world that was, like, not related to the movie at all. And yet, he was just so very similar to the character. So this year, it only seemed right to tell the story of a young man who wanted to be Jason Voorhees and to do it on Friday the 13th. So appropriate. Perfect. So before we get into Mark's story, how about we talk a little bit about why Friday the 13th is even a thing anyway? You guys didn't think you'd get away without a history lesson, did you? (laughs) It's me. Of course not. The truth of the matter is that nobody really knows why we all think Friday the 13th is unlucky, for sure. It started its life as a day of good fortune. So how then and when did things go so wrong? Well, there are a lot of theories. Some people think it's a biblical thing. So according to the History Channel, quote, 13 guests attended the Last Supper held on Maundy Thursday? What does that mean? I don't know the Bible. Did I say that right? Sure. Great including Jesus and his 12 apostles, one of whom, Judas, betrayed him. The next day, of course, was Good Friday, the day of Jesus's crucifixion. That is a unlucky Friday for certain, (laughs) for Jesus. For some. Yeah, (laughs) for people that were like there at the time, they didn't love it. Hmm. Some people did. Yeah, I guess. (laughs) See, I don't know the Bible. I thought everybody was sad. (laughs) I just didn't want to be that guy who brought up the Roman Empire. So, how many but times, I guess I'm bringing it up. How many times a day do you think about the Roman Empire? I don't want to answer that question on it. <laughs> it's at least one. An embarrassing amount of times. It's really funny. <laughs> so the seating arrangement at the Last Supper is believed to have given rise to a longstanding Christian superstition that having 13 guests at a table was a bad omen. Is that something you're aware of? I didn't know that. Yeah, I'm aware that that's a superstition. Wow. Specifically, if you had 13 guests at your table, you were courting death. So, like, someone was going to die, not just it was unlucky. Sure. Yikes. Though Friday's negative associations are weaker, some have suggested they also have roots in Christian traditions. This is just Friday. Mm -hmm. Just as Jesus was crucified on a Friday, Friday was also said to be the day Eve gave Adam the fateful apple from the tree of knowledge, as well as the day Cain killed his brother Abel. So, like, TG, die, Friday. (laughs) Well, Well done. Well done. Thank you. I didn't even have that written down. That just happened. <laughs> that was just in the moment. Magic. Perfect. <laughs> so people who don't think it's biblical think other things, obviously. Some of them think it's literary. For instance, a character in the 1834 play, Le Finesse de Gribo, French is notoriously the language I cannot pronounce, states, quote, I was born on a Friday, December 13th, 1813, from which come all of my misfortunes. There you go. Right? Probably. And if that wasn't enough, in 1907, uh, T.S. Lawson published a popular novel called Friday the 13th, and that contributed to the superstition as well. In the novel, an unscrupulous banker takes advantage of the superstition to create a Wall Street panic on a Friday the 13th. Oh, I like that. It's a good one, That's imaginative. Yeah. 
there you have it. He's like, oh, I'm going to make everybody freak out. So people think it's linked to that too. However, my favorite theory is that Friday the 13th lore goes all the way back to Norse mythology. Mm-hmm. Now, there is a connection that goes back even further to ancient pagan traditions, but we have to take a longer history dive to get into that. So I'm not going to do it today. Yeah. But Norse, however, here we go. One source mentioned for the unlucky nature of the number 13 is a North myth. North myth? <laughs> is a Norse myth about having 12 gods at a dinner party in Valhalla. The trickster god Loki was not invited, and he arrived as the 13th guest. Then he arranged for two other of the guests to shoot each other with a mistletoe-tipped arrow. Specifically, this says, I didn't want to have to pronounce the other language, but I'm going to do it now because it makes a difference. You're forgiven. Thank you. He arranged for Hor to shoot Baldur with a mistletoe-tipped arrow. So Balder dies and the whole earth goes dark. The whole earth mourned. It was a bad, unlucky day. This major event in Norse mythology caused by the number 13 is thought to be why it's considered unlucky by a lot of people. Mm. So I like that one the best because it's about like Loki being super petty. Mm. Oh, you didn't invite me? I'm going to come and I'm going to mess everything up forever. Yeah. Perfect. drama at a dinner party. I mean, that sounds right. It does. Who doesn't love that story? I do. But no matter which way you slice it, uh, Friday the 13th really does get the best of people. And not without a little bit of good reason. Some pretty gnarly things have happened on that day. I'm going to give you a list. The World War II bombing of Buckingham Palace happened on Friday the 13th, as did the murder of Kitty Genovese, who we have covered previously. The Titanic didn't sink on Friday the 13th, as a a lot of people like to say that it did. I don't know why. But Friday the 13th was the last normal day anyone on board would ever have. Mm. So the next day. So Saturday the 14th. Right. But I think decisions made on Friday the 13th probably affected it. So there you go. You're right. You're right. A cyclone that killed more than 300,000 people in Bangladesh um, happened on Friday, November 13th, 1970. Which, like, what's the difference between a cyclone and um, a tornado? Is there a difference? Oh, I am not weather expert. I'm not either, but I just realized that I never see that word used. A cyclone? It's a badass word. It's a great word, but you always see tornado. I wonder if it's different. Mm, Is a cyclone a tornado at sea? I don't know. Maybe. Or am I just making that up? Let's find out. Now I'm going to have to know. Tornadoes are produced in regions of large temperature gradient, while tropical cyclones are generated in regions of near zero horizontal temperature gradient. Oh. Oh, that. They're so so different. That explains everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if you understood that, you're like, God, guys, get it together. Obviously, that's the difference. We don't read enough books about weather. No, that's not one of my topics. (laughs) In other news, Tupac died on a Friday the 13th, was not shot on a Friday the 13th, died. We have more information about that now. Yes, we do. Supposedly. Although... Uh, I'm going to have a second of a tangent. These articles were all put out and everyone tagged me in them, of course. They're like, oh my God, cold case solved. But the solution is like a guy who admitted to it about like 100,000 times. He like wrote a book wherein he said, I was in the car with with the person when it happened and this is how it happened. And then he told a bunch of people he did it or something. So it's so anticlimactic. (laughs) Is this one of those instances, do you suppose? where somebody's trying to, they're already in a certain degree of trouble and they're trying to latch on to something bigger 
for clout or... It doesn't seem like that. What do you think his motivation is for... I think he just wants to be famous. Well, I guess that's what I meant. Because like, he wrote the... I don't think he's in trouble. I think he just... It's been so long that he kind of felt mm, a false sense of security to I be like, you. okay, but like, guys, Loki, I, I shot Tupac, you know? I haven't extensively read about it, but that's what it said to me. I, to be very honest with you, when I read that that's how they kind of sussed this out, I was furious because mm. I thought I was going to read about some fucking cool forensic stuff they did. I was mm. like, oh man, there's DNA that we didn't know about and they've tested it and they found him on like the database or they they did some really clever detective work where they found evidence we didn't know. It's just some guy who wrote a book. He <laughs> was just like, by the way, Remember this? It was that was me. It was me, and the that cops were like, "It was you," and that was it. Why would he confess unless he did it? I mean, I'm, but for years this guy has been like. Also, I am pretty sure it was this kind of gun, and um, I think it happened this way, and um, this is what he was just been slowly feeding them facts until he finally said it was him. Is what it sounds like to me, mm. uh, guys. I could be wrong. Again, I got so furious that this wasn't like an awesome forensic reveal that I couldn't read anything. So we can talk about Tupac another time. Another thing that happened on a Friday the 13th was Uruguayan Flight 571 crash landed in the, An in the Andes on Friday the 13th, 1972. Now, I don't know if that rings any bells, but it's the plane crash where the survivors famously ended up eating the dead to survive. Mm -hmm. The basis of the movie Alive. I think they were like a soccer team or something. I don't know. They ended up eating each other. Friday, March 13th, 2020 was the first official day of the COVID pandemic in the United States. Forgot that. Totally blocked that out of my mind. Cool. Something we celebrate every year. Right. <laughs> we do now. <laughs> and it doesn't stop there. According to NASA, an asteroid called 99942 Apophis. Catchy. Will, yeah, isn't it? <laughs> will come within 20,000 miles of the Earth on April 13th, 2029. This might not seem like a big deal, but it's actually extremely close in relation to the vastness of space. So Something to look forward to. Oh, God. I wish I didn't know that. And so I had to tell everybody else, basically. Space Force. <laughs> civil space. Yeah. Don't we'll throw, worry. Throw we're it back we're so covered. <laughs> we're fine. We have civil space. We're on it. I hope so. But fear not, Swifties. Your queen will turn that panic frown upside down for a minute. This is a quote from CNN, by the way. Taylor Swift, who considers 13 her lucky number and early in her career, often performed with the number 13 written on her hand, said, quote, I was born on the 13th. I turned 13 on Friday the 13th. My first album went gold in 13 weeks. My first number one song had a 13-second intro. Every time I've won an award, I've been seated either in the 13th seat, the 13th row, or the 13th section, or row M, which is the 13th letter. Basically, whenever a 13 comes up in my life, it's a good thing. From her perspective. <laughs> Although I also found out I was pregnant with Violet on a Friday the 13th, and Flynn, my son, was born on Friday the 13th. Well, Bowie was born October 1st, so... There you go. Spooky babies. Spooky One babies are the another. best. Basically, That's fine. So basically, we're all the same as Taylor Swift. Yes. Yeah. We are her. Yeah, we are. So It's our era. I'm waiting for... Oh, I see what you did there. We're going to get her ratings any minute now. Yeah. It's coming. No bad blood. No. Oh, boy. But for Tupac and everyone else, it's a little less awesome of a day. And so it should come as no surprise that an enterprising filmmaker took the opportunity to turn the day 
that strikes fear into the hearts of millions into a super successful horror movie franchise. It's not my favorite, but I did go camping, mandatory camping, at the place (laughs) (laughs) that served as Camp Crystal Lake when I was in sixth grade. It's definitely spooky. In case you're wondering, it's a Boy Scout camp called Camp Nobi Bosco, deep in the woods of northern New Jersey. Have you been? No. Okay, a lot of a lot of us have this same experience where we had to go to Stokes. It's in Stokes State Forest, and you have to like. My kids went. Did they? Oh, that's mm-hmm. right. Leslie told me that. Where like you, it's it's not updated either. It's like an old school no heat, no nothing camp, and I had to go in the winter. I don't know why they made that choice, but I did. And it was right after a huge blizzard. So the um, plumbing had frozen in some areas. Particularly spooky. But it is scary when you look over the lake where they they shoot the Crystal Lake stuff. Like, it is definitely an eerie location. So I'll give it it that. It's good for you as a kid. Oh, yeah. It's healthy. Oh, yeah. It's it's spooky enough. And the ghost story that they tell there is a really good one. And I tell it in one of our episodes. So you can go back and find that. If you need to. Yeah, right? Plug. I think it's on the Lake Bodum Murders one, but I can't remember. Anyway, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the film, Friday the 13th is about a group of attractive camp counselors who are brutally murdered by a machete-wielding madman in a hockey mask. That would be Jason. Or so you're led to believe for most of the movie. Jason has gone on to have scores of sequel movies devoted to him, even though, spoiler alert, he wasn't actually the killer in the original film. It was his mom, who we only call Mrs. Voorhees. She gets a name later on Does in the she? series, but I forget what it is right now. Good, yeah. because I'm like, this is eerily like a mother no-name situation. Yeah, for like three or four movies, it's just Mrs. Voorhees. Do better. So the deal with Mrs. Voorhees is that Jason is her son. He attended Camp Crystal Lake um, like 30 years prior or something and drowned in the lake while his counselors were having sex instead of watching him. Mm-hmm. I don't know a lot about this movie. Like, I can't even tell you who made this movie. I don't know anything about Friday the 13th. What do you want to tell us about Friday the 13th? It was made by a group of people, but headed up by a guy named Sean Cunningham, okay. who basically looked at what John Carpenter did with Halloween, and he said, movie about a killer, low budget, yeah. based around an iconic holiday of sorts, mm-hmm. a very popular day in pop culture, recipe for money. So they took out an ad in Variety, I believe, at the time. That was an advertisement for Friday the 13th, the movie, like the new thing in terror. And they you hadn't know? even made this film yet? They didn't oh, have that's a script. Funny. They didn't have anything. They just wanted to see if there was interest. Oh. And it drummed up enough interest where they got about a half a million dollars to make this first movie in the franchise. That's very interesting. And it was only ever supposed to be this one-off type thing, type of a rip-off of what John Carpenter had done with Halloween. That's so formulaic. Yeah, it was meant to be from the get-go. I mean, like, as someone who creates things, I hate that. Mm -hmm. But the business end of it, you got to kind of respect it because it's still cranking out money. The first handful of those movies Mm -hmm. all were the top-grossing movie at the time they came out. And I'm sorry, you guys, the first movie is the only one I've seen, and it is trash. (laughs) It is not a good movie. The writing is awful. It's got a couple things going for it that I really like as a horror fan. Such as? Uh, Tom Savini. Okay, yeah. On special effects. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, he's 
amazing always. Big George Romero fan, mm-hmm. you know, anybody that, you know, has showcased Tom Savini's work as a practical effects artist. I love that. It's it's my favorite kind of magic. Practical effects? Is horror, oh, horror yeah. movie practical effects. I agree. Because it's stage magic. Yeah. Shot in, in real time. I hate know? that they, I hate when CGI is so much of a thing in horror movies. I like the movies that go back to like using practical. I think it's mm-hmm. so much more of an art form. Yeah, I was talking to Leslie about this. I think the thing for me personally that makes me latch on to practical effects rather than CGI is that neither one of them after a while is truly scary. Right. Once you know what's going on. Yeah. But practical effects can still be gross. For sure. To where like if you're filming that scene and you've got a bunch of little green balls on you and you're shooting in front of a green screen. Yeah. That's, you know, you have to use your imagination and act and stuff, but it's not intrinsically horrifying. No. If you're on set and you're in a lake and like there's a head with like a machete coming, you know, out of it, like right next to you and it's oozing and you're getting real blood splatter on you. Yeah. That's at least giving you a tangible feeling. Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. Even if your brain knows this is fake, you're feeling real things. Yeah. So that's kind of what makes it a little more real. Absolutely. To me. No, I, I, I don't So I love agree. that about it. I love Tom Savini's, you know, work on it. Kevin Bacon getting the arrow. Oh, that's through right. The, oh, that's right. Kevin Bacon's yeah. in that movie. I totally yeah. forgot. You can use this uh, if you're still playing Kevin Bacon. You can use this six, movie. Six Degrees it's of Kevin Bacon. It's a very good one to use. <laughs> I also love the score. Um, Harry Manfredini's score for this okay. uh, movie. I'm a big fan of horror movie scores. And he did something super interesting with this one. It's literally a mashup of two of the most famous movie scores you've heard. Which and you ones? know both of them very, very well. Which ones? He took the score from Psycho. Oh, God. Yeah. So li- listen famous. to the score from Friday the 13th. Okay. It's Psycho, those staccato string hits, the bah, 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 mm-hmm. bah, mixed with Jaws. Da dum. Even the score is formulaic. I can't. Mm-hmm. Now, the cool thing that he added was that partway through the movie, uh, there's a line that Mrs. Voorhees says, um, and she's kind of intuiting Jason's voice. Mm-hmm. And I believe it's something like, kill them, mommy, or like, kill kill them for me, mommy, or something like that. It's been a while since I actually Ew, watched it. I don't like that. And, and, but she says it. Okay. Like she's like hearing Jason's yeah. voice almost guide her. So Harry Manfredini, what he did was he thought that's kind of what this was all leading up to, mm-hmm. like this state of psychosis this woman was in. So he took the two syllables from kill and mom, and he went, and he put it through something called an echoplex, which is a rack echo effect, okay. like a delay mm-hmm. uh, effect. So it, it, that created the effect of going. No, that's he's very saying, interesting. He's saying kill mom. Ew. <laughs> See, so it's, so it's psycho and it's Jaws because psycho, the killer, mm-hmm. Jaws, Jason's kind of more like an animal. Yeah. He's he's kind of like a shark in the water. Which I he has have no questions feelings. about that. We'll get to that in a second. <laughs> and the cool thing that he did was take that and make that sound, that iconic hard yeah, yeah, sound. Yeah, yeah, uh, That's kind of what he added to that. That is wild. 
And also so much more sophisticated than that movie deserves. <laughs> well, that that score really elevates the movie. Yeah. To where I like mean, the writing isn't great, the no. acting isn't great sometimes, but that score makes it feel so classic. Yeah, I was just distracted because it's the writer in me that was just, is so distracted by bad dialogue. Yeah. Bad dialogue kills me and I'm just sitting there going like... But it's, it's like the Marvel Comics approach. Like they drew the pictures first yeah. and created some word bubbles and handed it to some writers and they were like, fill it in. <laughs> Basically. And I love the aesthetic of the film. I love that summer camp. I love the 70s color palette. I love the like uniforms, the knee socks, the whole, obviously I love that. Our, we have a whole photo shoot where we look like that because I yeah. love that aesthetic. It's just God. And then the plot is so like weirdly convoluted. It has like, uh, upon reading it, without watching the terrible dialogue in real time, I thought this has such potential to be like this spooky thing if they went with the mom and they kept, but they didn't. They chose to make Jason a thing that crawls out of the lake in the end and then lives on forever. Yeah, originally. I don't like that. Well, originally, the when they made that first movie, mm -hmm. that was just supposed to be a dream sequence. That wasn't them saying he's oh. been alive the whole time. I like that, that better. the girl dreaming in the boat you know, oh. and, and the cops are coming to rescue her and she almost kind of falls asleep because she's finally letting her guard down mm -hmm. and that she falls asleep and has this one final terror to send the audience out on. And really the only reason they did that mm -hmm. is because Carrie had just came out. Oh my God. <laughs> if you remember the end of the movie, the arm pops yeah, out of the yeah, grave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like iconic. That's the only reason they had the jump scare at the end. I'm so mad. Everything makes me mad. Mm -hmm. I mean, like it makes sense. And what a fucking smart business-minded team they had behind this film, yeah, but it just makes me mad. That's what this movie was. It was a horror movie on purpose. Right. I mean, you can, there is a formula mm -hmm. to slasher movies. They yeah. are all, they all have the same formula. Halloween started them mm -hmm. um, in that, in that format. Yeah. It started that formula and that's, Halloween gets a pass because one, it was the first and two, it is still very clever. Yeah. I will never speak ill of the original Halloween. It's my favorite scary movie. John Carpenter. Yeah. God. He's the best. If you guys have not listened to the interview I did with Tony Moran, who played Michael Myers, like the shade, the, the face and the mask. Um, the shape. The shape. That's what it is. If you guys haven't listened to that yet, go listen to it. Tony is a trip. It was so fun. It's and a really good interview. You will know so much more about the making of 70s horror movies. And it is fascinating, the things that he had to say. So go listen to that anyway. Um but like point of order questions about Jason Voorhees, just because I haven't watched any of the other films. I don't, Friday the 13th, not my jam. The day, love it. The films, no thank you. <laughs> um, they get progressively more ridiculous, like most horror franchises. And it had such do. potential. The mom was like this crazy, and again, that reminds me of Psycho, and the mm -hmm. fact that it was like the twist was that it's... Well, it's flipped. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's flipped. It's not Norman because Bates. Because the mom and, yeah. is the one killing it. Right. With her son in her head. And Norman God, Bates is yeah. the killer with mom in the head in Psycho. And doesn't she have like the body with her at one point or something in the end of the movie, the mom in, in Friday the 13th? Or they allude to that. I don't remember. Well, so in the second one, mm -hmm. I believe, I could be getting some of this messed up. I believe in the second one is where you see like Shay Jason like where he's been hiding. Because in the second one, Jason See, is actually... I don't know actually, any of that. <laughs> okay, so in the second one, mm -hmm. Jason actually does the killing. I figured he must. He doesn't have the <laughs> hockey mask yet. That doesn't come up. The hockey mask doesn't come until the third movie. That's right. I was also furious because I didn't get the hockey mask. He's I watched a, that whole movie. <laughs> yeah, no. So the second one, he's just got a sack on his head. 
Ew, scarier. With, with one eye cut out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nope. But I think in that one, um, the final girl ends up uh, defeating, well, getting away from Jason. Clearly. Because he has a little shrine set up to his mom. And he's got, because she gets her head cut off, spoilers, in the first movie. He's got her head sitting there. And she finds his mom's sweater that she was wearing. So she puts it on. Mm-hmm. And she talks to him like, Jason, you listen to me now, kind Ew. of thing. And that's, he kind of like does that dog head tilt yeah. thing. That's Michael Myers. Yeah, exactly. Same thing. Jason does the same thing see, in these movies. I'm glad I didn't see that one because I be, I get <laughs> mad about ripping off things that I really like unless enough time has passed. So like if I watch a modern movie mm-hmm. that takes from Halloween and so many do. Yeah. Like all of them do. But if At I least see, this one was honest about it. Yeah. If I see a direct homage moment where that head tilt happens, I get excited. Yeah. But if it's too close, I'm like, ugh. And it, it's a genius thing to do. Oh, yeah. It's so unnerving. Well, it's so animalistic mm-hmm. and innocent at the same time. And pointed. Mm-hmm. He's looking at this, speaking of Michael Myers, he if you guys haven't seen Halloween, which, what are you doing? He has like pinned this guy to the wall like a butterfly with his knife. And he just looks at it and just tilts his head like, Look at that. It's innocent curiosity. Yeah, it's just like, huh. You have lots of creepy things pinned up around your I house. I do. <laughs> <laughs> so so Jason, we find out, is a real person. Mm-hmm. And he ha- he survived his drowning. Yeah, the, the chronology of these movies is very, Shaky very... Shaky at best. Yeah, yeah. all right. <laughs> um, so in the second movie, the, it starts with like a tie-in to the first movie and then skips ahead like a certain number of years. But all of a sudden, Jason's... Not like a little boy coming out of the lake. He's like a full-grown lumbering man type. Yeah, he's huge. Yes. That's the thing with Jason. Jason is not like normal man-shaped. He's, yeah, he's giant. He's been living out in the woods, living on I don't know what. Well, those things for all these years make you strong. Yeah, crawdads. He I guess. ate badgers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, something nuts. And uh, he survives, and he does the killing in the second movie. Okay, and that, and in the third movie you kind of get more of the traditional Jason to where he kills this one character who's kind of a prankster type, who's kind of like, a, almost like that um, scream thing where it's Randy. like... Randy. He, he's the kid in the horror movie that's almost aware of jump scares or yeah. horror movie things. Mm-hmm. Or he's the pop culture type kid. He's Randy. Um, he, Shelly, his name is. Oh, in, similar. In the third one. Okay. <laughs> and he pops out of the water with like scuba gear and a harpoon and a hockey mask on at one of the girls. Oh boy. To scare her, mm-hmm. one of the other camp kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, and later on, you see Jason wearing that mask. So he took Shelly's mask. So, oh. And that's and in the third movie, that's where we get the mask from. And it so just is, became a does thing. Does he has a hideous, have a hideous facial deformity? Is that why we can't see his face? Yeah. So if you notice uh, in the first one, and I forget what this syndrome is called in medical terms. But, I know, might know. Lay so it on me. <laughs> it's It's got the, when you have like a larger cranium mm-hmm. and then some of your uh, facial features uh, droop or oh. are enlarged on one side. Okay. Um, Tom Savini, you know, was a war photographer in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the reasons why he's so good at special effects is he compared so it seen to it all. the yeah. real thing. Mm-hmm. And if it didn't give him the same feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, as seeing the real thing, you know, he would know he have to do more work on it. Mm-hmm. So I I believe that he based the first Jason that jumps out of the lake yeah. on on a real medical condition. That's where he got his inspiration from. Okay. Uh, and in the, the subsequent movies, they anytime you see Jason with his 
uh, mask off in the first like four five movies, he does have varying versions of some kind of a facial <laughs> deformity, and you're almost led to believe that like okay, well he was a little bit different. He had some of these medical issues as a kid, right? And that's why the camp counselors kind of let him drown in a way. See, I'd rather all of that be just in one movie. Yeah. Put it all together in one actually well-developed. This is an afterthought. Your plot is an afterthought and I don't appreciate it. We're looking for this to be art and it is in a certain kind of way, but it's not highfalutin. It's very like, this is why we want to see some kills. <laughs> yeah. We want to see some TNA. You know, we want yeah. to sell some tickets. That's part of the formula, man. <laughs> That's, That's it. That's totally part of the formula. Don't get distracted. Jason's going to kill you. Mm-hmm. See, if we were less concerned with quality and just had a formula for things, maybe we'd have bajillion dollars. Yeah. We have too much integrity. We do. Here at We Would Be Dead headquarters. We do. That's the problem. Yeah. It's a good problem to have. I mean, we not, think so, clearly. Not financially, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, in all, but in other ways that, yes, it is. Okay. So... Now I know a little bit more about what Jason is and where the hockey mask came from, because really, I, part of me was just like, what? That's his, that's why he's an icon, but it's not even in the like original form of the film. So I don't understand. You know what somebody who um, has a ton of money and wants to make a ton of money should do is take those first few Friday the 13th and put them together to make a good movie and then redo it all together. But you know, at the same time, there's a certain charm to those movies to where they've done newer versions and they've done remakes. Did they do a remake of that mm-hmm. one? I did not know that. And uh, they just don't have the same charm anymore. It's it's kind of the thing with the new Exorcist movie. There's been so many movies about exorcisms at this point. That. Exactly. It's redundant. It doesn't add anything. No, not when you have like, the Exorcist is a masterpiece. So looking back, yes, all those movies are masterpieces in their own way, mm. just like Friday the 13th was I when guess. it came out. You know, it established, it helped establish a genre, whereas Halloween was just being a cool movie. Yeah. The first time you copy something as an homage or mm-hmm. do a little mishmash of things, that's almost establishing like a subgenre that people find, they've found so much fun in over yeah. the years. So there's I'll something to that. that. All right, I'll stop shitting on Friday the 13th. <laughs> Jason's a scary villain. I mean, the the image is very frightening. The the big, the, the fact that he's larger than life, the obscured face. We talked umpteen times about why obscured faces are so frightening on this podcast. They are, they really are. Um, and so I was under the impression that he had like a, like a large knife, like a machete, but then there are some pictures that he has an axe. He uses everything to kill. Okay, so he does not have, like, Michael Myers, it's a butcher knife. Sure. But, but with even Jason, that, he's... Even Michael Myers will use... Yeah, he uses other what's stuff. ...what's laying but around. Iconically, he has a big, big old knife. But Jason... Because of the flashback and stuff, so... Jason kills with a machete, iconically, okay. All a right. lot. So then that's his weapon of choice. It, yes, is it the, does is the come machete. up a lot. Because this is going to come back when we, um, we touch on this real case. But he'll that. just squeeze and pop your head... Till your brains come out, too. When you spend your life in the woods eating badgers and you're seven feet tall, you can do that. Yeah. Do what you got to do. You do. And sometimes you have to do that. It's all good. (laughs) But you know what? If I was, if my special needs child drowned in a lake while the counselors were supposed to be watching him and were fucking instead, I might go kill all the counselors. Well, that's kind of. Sympathetic. The actress who played uh, Mrs. Voorhees actually brings this up. 
she's like, she said, people will bring their babies up and get their pictures taken with me. And I'm always like, why do you love this character so much? And parents will look at me and say, yeah, we, we get it. We get yeah, it. for sure. She's way more interesting than the actual like to me than actual Jason is after that. I think that the character of the mother is very interesting. But yeah, the other first one, movie I'm not. Is, there's a lot of good things about that yeah. first movie. Yeah. All right. I'll go with you on that. So Jason Voorhees, now that we know as much as there can be known in a short period of time about him, <laughs> he doesn't sound like much of a hero, per se. Even if he didn't do the killing in the first film, he's still not great. And he's designed to be a manifestation of everyone's worst fear. So if he is designed off Michael Myers, that is what Michael Myers was designed to be. Everyone's worst fear, which is a faceless killer who enters your home while you are unaware or cabin, as it were, that's still their temporary home in secret and performs horrific acts without reason or mercy. Mm -hmm. Right? That's the formula. He's something that you can project your own fears onto. Exactly, because he's faceless. Kind so of a blank can, canvas. Absolutely. And while plenty of young men dress up as Jason on Halloween, and they still do, Jason is still a pretty popular Halloween costume. Almost none of them actually want to be him. Which brings us to Mark Branch. Mark Branch is an interesting character, and we'll get to him in one second a little more. First, let's talk about 18-year-old Sharon Gregory. Sharon Gregory um, was studying psychology at Greenfield Community College. We're in Greenfield, Massachusetts, for anyone who didn't remember that from the very beginning. That's where we are. Sharon was a good student. She was well-liked by her peers. She had a boyfriend named Chris and friends that she hung out with after school and on weekends. She was living the very, like, college freshman dream. Just no stress, normal life. Textbook, really. She lived at home with her parents. Because remember, I said community college, so she commuted, and her twin sister, Cheryl. All in all, Sharon is a pretty happy young woman looking out onto a future of endless possibilities. For one of her introductory psychology classes that year, though, Cheryl had to write a psychological profile on someone. <laughs> this is a, I don't know if this assignment would work out well today. This is 1988, so it's a little bit different. Um, so she had to write a profile on someone, anybody. She could interview anyone and write their psychological profile. And since Cheryl is an ambitious young lady, she chose a off-kilter, colorful local character named Mark Branch. I believe it is irresponsible for a professor to have allowed that to happen because this is someone who, they said, you can use anyone. And this man, as we'll come to find out, is like, documentedly unstable. He was the wrong, he was exactly the wrong person to choose. Right. I mean, she felt that he was the exact right person to choose because it's the most material. But for her actual safety, this was not yes. advisable, um, which is why I don't know that it would happen today. For a student ex exercise. Right. She's not a professional. This is a first year student of psychology. Yeah. So she chooses Mark. Mark was 19 years old. He worked at the local stop and shop. He wasn't attending college, but he uh, had been kicked out of two high schools in the past five years. Interesting. Yes. Um, and but one was the public high school. And then he went to a private school and he was kicked out of that one, too. And he was kicked out of both of them for threatening female classmates. Mm. This is the blanket term they use. But what he did was he would either write threatening notes about how he wanted to kill them and tape them to their locker. Cool. Or he would call them. Anonymous note, 
anonymously, not be like, hey, it's Mark, but like, you know, creepy voice, not saying who it is, and say like sexually disgusting things to them over the phone. And this is like a like a 15-year-old kid. Mm-hmm. So that's not awesome. And it didn't go over very well. But Mark did manage to finish out his high school degree at the special cro- program he went to for psychologically troubled youth. So he then went to like an outpatient at-risk youth program where they gave you therapy and they would help you finish your high school degree. Okay. Great. That's that's yeah. fine. Go finish. It has a very rehabby name, like New Promises of Hope or something. <laughs> and it's not there anymore, so it doesn't matter. But um, that's, that's how he graduated. After he graduated, he didn't go on to college, but he was working and living and doing okay. And for the Branch family, who there is nothing about anywhere online, not one fact. Not his parents. Not, you can't find anything about these people. But for them, apparently this was enough. Could be for the best. Could be. Could be. I would love to say it's because the media is protecting them, but the media doesn't protect anyone. So <laughs> it's definitely not because of that. Um, but Mark also hung out with like local kids his age still, or he tried to, I should say, because he did not have a lot of friends in high school. Shock, surprise. He's like gluing murder notes to lockers. So he had a friend here and there, but he didn't have like a a pack that he ran with. And he continued to kind of try and attach himself onto groups, even though he didn't go to college after high school. That's just who this guy kind of was. He was the guy that you would hang out with in a crowd and he would say something that like just kind of missed. You're like, you went a little too far and now we all need to walk away from you. Mm -hmm. From what I've gathered, that's who this guy kind of was. And um, Mark's The friends he did have, and anyone with an earshot really, also knew that he was completely obsessed with horror movies. A lot of us like horror movies. Mm -hmm. This is a next level thing. He liked the gorier the better too. He loved slasher movies. He um, especially liked Michael Myers and Jason Voorhees. They were his favorites. And they were kind of the same. So we can see he clearly liked a thing. He had a thing. Mm -hmm. He had a type, we should say. And what year is this? 1988. Okay. So this is Halloween 4, just came yeah. out. And this I don't... This is the height of slasherdom. Oh, for sure. I don't know how many Friday the 13th there were at that point, but um, we were at Jason territory because mm-hmm. he also collected um, hockey masks. Yeah. So he had like a whole display with a bunch of them that he had just purchased or were costume pieces. And then he actually owned some of the prop masks that were mm-hmm. used in the films. So he like was very invested in the horror movie culture, which right now is a pretty valid hobby. Like you can go to conventions, you can collect things. It's not super duper fringe or niche, but in 1988, it kind of was. So the fact that he was able to find some of this stuff was curious to people around him. It wasn't just like, oh yeah, that guy, he probably went on eBay. Yeah. Um, So it is more of note than it would be now. Mm. But everyone likes to talk about their special interests, right? That's what we're doing right now. Yep. But Mark Branch did this to just like completely unsolicited. So he would be just hanging out with a group of people or just one of his friends and he would be talking incessantly about like, well, if I was going to kill somebody, this is how I'd do it. It'd be really cool to like go and murder people. Like he, his slant on these slasher films and these iconic killer characters seemed to be kind of hero worshipy. Also not a good slant. You don't want that. You can have someone who appreciates the character in the story but if you want to, if you're like, oh, man, I would do it this way. And it's so cool that this guy did this. That's. I think part of that is very natural. Sure. 
especially when you make the villain, so to speak, mm-hmm. kind of sympathetic. Sure. Right? Um, which Jason is definitely and- way more humanized than, say, Michael Myers was at first. Right. Michael Myers' whole thing at first was that there was no reason why so he, he had did no this. soul. That was yeah. the, it. Was and like he's just Dr. blank. Yeah, Doctor Loomis harps on it the yeah. whole movie. Oh yeah. Whereas with Jason, it's all about this tragic backstory. Sure. So, so I get in that instance feeling almost like a kinsmanship sure. with that character a little more easily. He's a troubled kid. He Mm -hmm. doesn't fit in with people himself. He's fighting social battles of his own. He's sure. And I guess he sees this guy like taking out, I guess, some level of revenge on people. Mm -hmm. I don't know that Jason's a revenge killer, but like his mother was. In in a way. I mean, he's he supposedly sees his mother get decapitated in the first movie. So that could be the onus for the rest of his actions. You could look at it that way. In that way, I mean, it's not very far away from a little boy like in Batman. Right. You're right. But again, today, we can recognize certain red flags in this situation. In hindsight. Yeah. Because we've seen a lot more of things like this happen. We've seen troubled, especially young men end up, I don't know, shooting up their schools. So we've done a little more study into that kind of facet of culture. But at the time, it wasn't, he was just the weird kid. That's all people knew. They were like, all right. So when he would do things like talk in detail about how he might kill a young girl, which he specifically expressed wanting to do, I would kill a woman this way. Always a woman. Always a good looking woman. Everyone said, oh, that's Mark. He loves horror movies. He's just like talking about the stuff he likes. And don't ignore him. It's weird. You can walk away. But like nobody, nobody was terrified of this kid. Mm-hmm. And and later on, they go on to, like, interview the guy that works at the local video store who also talks about how he just relentlessly rented hundreds and hundreds of horror movies all the time. I would love to hear that interview. <laughs> I know. It doesn't. There's. I think I have, like, a little piece of it I can read, but it doesn't exist in full anywhere. And I'm like, that guy's probably a character. I'm just picturing, like, a, a burnout Polly Shore type. I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, he's probably old, too. He's probably, like, a, like a 50-some-odd-year-old guy. Like, this is my life. Yeah. That's not old. <laughs> middle age. We'll go middle age. We're creeping up on that ourselves, Holly. So. Oh, we are. <laughs> but I'm saying in terms of video store clerk, he wasn't a high school kid. He was no. definitely a full-scale adult. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> who I'm I, picturing uh, the, the very pretentious, nerdy guy from The Simpsons. Exactly. Yeah. Who's like, <laughs> knows everything about all of them. Yeah, yeah, I really want that to be true. In reality, the interview with the guy that works at Stop and Shop is a little more like <laughs> that, but whatever, it's fine. So Mark was describing murders in this garish and cinematic style, but there were no red flags going off. However, that opinion would change on October 24th. So on October 24th, 1988, Cheryl, which is Sharon's twin sister, and I always mix up their names because they're so close. Some parent named their kids Sharon and Cheryl. They did. They did. Mm. You know, I, I, I know a family and their kids are named Tim, Tom, Tyler, and Taylor. No. And I could never, I mean, wonderful family, but I could never, I could never do that. This isn't even totally alliterative because Cheryl is spelled with a C-H and Sharon is spelled with an S-H. The sound is there, but the spelling is different. That's so weird. I know. And my brain cannot 
fully differentiate what I'm just reading. I confuse them all the time. Dissect that one in therapy. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> so her sister, we're, we're going to go through in one second and go through the actual probable cause affidavit, which won't take long because it's the 80s and it wasn't super long. Um, but I'm going to tell the story just in broad strokes so that when we go in, we know what we're dealing with. Cheryl goes to, uh, she goes home. She's coming home after, I don't know what she was doing because they lived at home, as I mentioned. And she, at least I believe they lived at home. Now I'm doubting myself. We're going to get to it in the probable cause affidavit in one second. She goes to her sister's house. She goes in the front door. She's concerned. She hasn't heard from her sister. She's wondering why she hasn't heard from her. She enters the front door. There's nobody there. She looks around. She goes up to the bathroom. She finds her sister totally eviscerated in the bathtub, just like stabbed in the chest, throat slit, like horror movie killed. This is not like, uh, and nothing's gone. So this is not burglary gone awry. This is like clearly, very clearly murder. They, her along with a neighbor, call the police. The police come. They say, what do you think happened? And her sister Cheryl immediately goes, she was afraid of a man named Mark Branch. It's so fast. Well, I, I'll get you all the details, guys, I promise. But I need to make this very clear. The reason this episode would can't, can't be three hours devoted to this case is because there's no investigation. It's just like, it was this guy, Mark. It was. She wrote a paper on him. He did not like it, apparently. He was, like, not loving the fact, like, what she wrote about him. He did not like the outcome. And he wanted it back from her. So they're like, she, I think he was mad. He wasn't nice to her. She seemed afraid. She was always looking over her shoulder in reference to this guy. It was this guy. And the cops are like, was it? And then they speak to the neighbor across the street. The neighbor's like, oh, you mean the guy who drove the gray Chevy and showed up at this house yesterday at this time and walked in the front door and then left however many minutes later? That guy? And they're like, yeah, yeah, that's the that's the guy. <laughs> he might as well have just walked in the police station himself. And yeah. Like, well, I did it. Exactly, because they didn't look for anyone else. There is no, beyond that, there is no investigation. They're like, well, we got to find Mark Branch. Mm -hmm. So they go out to try and find him and, and he's nowhere to be found, which is odd. He like disappeared off the face of the earth. He has friends who can give him the lead up to where he was until the event. But afterwards, we have no idea. And a month later, they find his car on the edge of the woods in a neighboring town. They go look around a little bit. They see nothing in his car. And the days following, a hunter in those woods comes upon his body hanging from a tree. The medical examiner collects his body and discovers that his, the hanging occurred what appears to be right after the murder. So police, who enjoyed the most logical answer, say, well, clearly he got, was distressed. He killed Cheryl, uh, Sharon. I knew I was going to do it. And then he drove out to the woods and hanged himself. Mm -hmm. And everyone was like, that sounds right. And then that was it. So meanwhile, there's a month's time in between the discovering of him and the, the murder. And um, that is where we get to the fact that they tried to cancel Halloween. Yeah. Because the information that was discovered about him, as soon as they started investigating just Mark Branch, was all the things that I just told you. This is a guy that's obsessed with horror movies. He has all these Jason masks. They're like, he's probably hiding in plain sight. Yeah. So the whole town pretty much thought he's, it's Halloween too. It's the 24th of October, that whole week. They're like, anybody we see could be this guy. Mm 
anybody with their face obscured could be this guy who just brutally murdered a girl and all of us are at risk. So it was a terrifying atmosphere in that town for a little while. Fortunately, you know, nothing else happened and he was gone. But there is also the rumor um, after they found him, and I find this very interesting, and strangely, there's no information about it, that he didn't hang himself, per se, Mm -hmm. but people who knew Sharon and members of the community did that for him, Mm -hmm. covertly, of course, because, as I mentioned, immediately everyone knew it was Mark. So there wasn't like, oh no, we're looking for a killer. It was just, we're looking for Mark. So the likelihood that a group of locals could have hunted him down, pretty high. If he didn't leave the area, just saying. So now that we know the basic arc of the story, let's go through the probable cause affidavit. Sorry, I'm just picturing, did you watch all the new Halloween movies? I did. Okay. I'm just picturing all the townspeople with tortures uh, (laughs) chanting evil dies tonight. Same thing, probably, in their head, not out loud. (laughs) Out loud, they were like, you should still go trick-or-treating, but on Sunday afternoon. (laughs) They canceled, and that's the other funny thing about this, is that they didn't cancel kids' Halloween. They Mm -hmm. relocated it so the kids would be safe. And parents were encouraged to still have their children engage in all kinds of Halloween activities. But they canceled Mm. adult Halloween activities Mm. because they were not worried about a child in costume. They were worried about an adult in costume. Yeah. So it was painfully clear. And they also, that's why they didn't play specifically Halloween because they were concerned that he would show up to that Mm -hmm. because that was his thing was horror movies. They're like, well, this guy who's wandering around in a mask killing people is going to roll up at the movies. Yeah, it's just so, it's so stereotypical that it's probably not accurate. Well, also every article, and I have a really excellent sensational quote that I'll read in one second about them discovering his body. but. Every article about this case also says that he killed Sharon while wearing the Jason mask. Mm-hmm. There is no way to tell that. Yeah. How would There's you know that? no way to tell that. I don't know why. I mean, it does make for a better story. I get it. But there is, I mean, maybe he did. Maybe he did. But also maybe he didn't. And we have no proof, proof either way. Which leads me to further think, like we discussed this earlier, mm-hmm. the only reason anyone knows about this story is because of the pop culture tie-in. Sure. Um, and that, that sounds very callous. But there are so many murders. But like, I don't think it's untrue. No. Especially if, like, this was something that a town didn't necessarily want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Might be easier to frame it in a, oh, yeah, this yeah. movie tie-in kind of way. Nothing to see here. We definitely didn't all band together to kill this kid who we judged outside the court system. Nothing to see here. Which, frankly, I lean towards that theory pretty heavily. And I'm not, I mean, you've heard everything I've ever said. I do not lean against, like, facts and science ever. I I really don't. I don't go into conspiracies. That's not my thing. Mm. But there are no, the the fact that I just found this probable cause affidavit and that it only exists in one location, and there are, there's just so few verifiable facts available on this case. Just nothing. I mean, really nothing. Even a newspaper article from a local newspaper that I will read, which interviews all of his friends, is buried under tons of other things. You cannot find it online. It's buried within another article. Then it's clickable and you have to download it. It's like, it's not there. 
Yeah, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist right now because mm-hmm. uh, you can open the door uh, for this line of thinking and go mm-hmm. way too far with it. But any fact you've heard, any document you've read yeah. has been documented and written down by another human being. Sure. And in a way, you're choosing to trust that what this person has documented was actually what happened. And it's not just something you're reading on the internet or something that was stuck in a record box. Yeah. And I know that flies in the face of, you know, we need to all believe in, you know, that there is a common truth here and that we can believe in things. But at the same time, just take it with a grain of salt. You know, this is written down by somebody else who may have had different motivations. Like in this instance, you know, a town that was trying to cover up what they thought was vigilante justice. Yeah. So that's why. more akin to like sundown town activity. It absolutely is. (laughs) But I mean, without the racism. But um, that's why when normally when I research a case and when we fully produce a whole case, I triangulate information. Mm -hmm. I never just trust a source. I have tons of sources. Mm -hmm. And I don't tell our listeners a fact unless I have read that fact in at least three other places, all of which are places who have checked their facts. So yeah, we are believing interviews and stuff, but triangulating things really does show you all the angles and you can kind of suss out approximately what's going on. Which makes this case troubling. Uh Exactly. Because I can't triangulate any of this. Mm -hmm. All I have are like ranker articles and like um, the the CNN coverage about Friday the 13th. That's like a puff piece. It's not like pop culture. All of it is. All of it is. It does Mm -hmm. not exist in like a very news related format. So to me, I was like, this is fun to talk about because it's Friday the 13th, but I can't give it the normal attention I give a case. It doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So Um, What I'm going to do is I'm going to go through the affidavit and then I'm going to go through the one good article that I do think has video store guy in it for you. Nice. And then we can kind of give our thoughts on it. So here you guys go. Okay, so following is the text of Greenfield Police Captain Joseph P. Lachance's affidavit summarizing events before and after the murder of Sharon Gregory on October 4th, 24th, sorry, which established Mark Branch as the chief suspect in the crime. Quote, I am a police officer with the Greenfield Police Department. I have been so employed for over 20 years. My rank is captain. On October 24th, 1988, at approximately 12.30 p.m., this is bright, bright light of day, I was notified that the Greenfield Police Department had received information of a death at 138 South Shelburne Road in Greenfield. The report was made by the wife of Greenfield Police Officer Harry Burns. Why was it made by Harry Burns' wife? We don't know. Um, who had learned of the death through the deceased's sister. Why is that the woman that made the police report? That is never done. Never done. The police report isn't some random police officer's wife. That is what I'm talking about. Greenfield police officer Jack Needies, can't hear it pronounced anywhere because nobody reads it, was sent to 138 South Shelburne Road with another officer. They found the deceased identified as Sharon Gregory in the upstairs bathroom at that address. Staff Sergeant Norman Norman Roberts of the Crime Prevention and Control Unit of the Massachusetts State Police attached the Northwestern District Attorney's Office and the medical examiner, blah, 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 were notified, reported to the scene. Later, the medical examiner's van with 
Albert Gickness, MD, good name, arrived and Trooper Timothy Sicard arrived next. Those are all the people. Those are real people. They were there. We have our cast of characters. We sure do. Preliminary examination of the deceased at the scene showed evidence of multiple stab wounds about the back and head and that the deceased's throat had been slashed. There was a large amount of blood in the bathroom and outer hall, as well as traces of blood on the stairway. The weapon used to inflict the injuries was not found at the scene, and the deceased was clothed. We never find that weapon, BT dubs. Mm-hmm. Detective F. Peter Clark spoke with the deceased's sister, Cheryl. She resided at the same address, though, yeah, with the deceased and their parents. She told Detective Clark that the deceased had recently been concerned about an individual named Mark. So there it is immediately. Mm-hmm. Who Cheryl knew to be a person who hung around with Scott Landry of Maple Street in Greenfield. Now, Scott Landry is his one friend and every information, every piece of information we know about Mark, we get from Scott. Okay. The deceased had told Cheryl she was frightened by the manner in which Mark stared at her and other things. Cheryl said that she did not know Mark's last name. Yes, she did. But that she had been to his residence. Cheryl and I proceeded pursuant to her directions to Meadow Lane. Meadow Lane, that's his house in Greenfield. She pointed out a house, which is 112 Meadow Lane, as being the house at which Mark lived. So Cheryl was able to take them to Mark's house. Later, I went to 112 Meadow Lane, a single-family home with Detective Clark and Trooper Leonard Crossman of CPAC. We went to the door and knocked. The door was answered by Mrs. Branch, mother no name. Detective Clark knew Mrs. Branch to be the mother of Mark Branch, who Detective Clark knew from an investigation several years ago. He knew the mom? No, he knew Mark. Mark. I'm guessing it was because of the, like, notes on girls' lockers, but it doesn't say. Yeah. Mrs. Branch responded that Mark Branch was not at home, but that he did live at that address. She said that she had seen Mark Branch that morning at the house at about 10.30 a.m. with Scott Landry. She had then left to go shopping and had not seen Mark Branch since. Prior to 10.30 a.m., Mark Branch had gone to and returned from a meeting with his counselor at the Massachusetts Rehabilitation Commission, part of the special school scenario. Okay. Mrs. Branch described Mark's motor vehicle. It's a gray Chevrolet Chevette in good shape. A check with the Registry of Motor Vehicles through the computer link shows a registration to Mark W. Branch at 112 Meadow Lane in Greenfield. So it all checks out. He drove a 1983 Chevy Chevette. It was gray with Massachusetts registration and plates. The vehicle is listed as a two-door sedan. And there's all the numbers on it. At 625 p.m., Michael J. Rockwell of 144 South Shelburne Road Greenfield, which is the residence directly west of the deceased's residence and who is employed by Judd, it doesn't matter. Um, So this is the neighbor. Telephoned Greenfield police. He then came into the department where he was interviewed by Sergeant Edward Peremba and Trooper Timothy Sicard. Mr. Rockwell told the officers that at noon on this date, so this just happened in the daytime. I was under the impression that it was overnight because again, there are no facts. He had just begun to watch television, so he was watching his programs, when he heard the sound of a car door closing. The sound came from the driveway to the east of his house. He looked out of his window and observed a dark gray Chevette, possibly two-door, parked facing the driveway. The front end of the Chevette was about even with the walk going from the driveway to the door of the residence. Uh, Mr. Rockwell observed a white male, approximately six foot tall, about a buck eighty, with dark hair, Mr. Rockwell said the hair was a long military cut. He 
He did not see any facial hair. The man was wearing jeans, a jean jacket, so a Canadian tuxedo, <laughs> both acid washed, looking good. The man was clean cut. The man had his hands in his pockets and Rockwell watched him walk to the front door. He was not wearing glasses. So if he's not wearing glasses and we can see his face, he's not wearing a hockey mask. Mm -hmm. Confirmed. Every article says he was wearing a hockey mask. That's more fun. It is way more fun, but totally wrong. Between three and five minutes later, Mr. Rockwell again heard a car door from the direction of the driveway. So this is just a few minutes later. He looks out the window, sees the Chevette, the engine starts, Chevy backs out of the driveway and leaves. So he's only there for a few minutes, okay? Approximately 30 to 40 minutes later, Mr. Rockwell again heard the door, uh, heard a car door in the same driveway. Looking out, he saw Cheryl's car pull in. Ew! Moments later, he saw police arrive. So like 40 minutes later, Cheryl was there and like, you're the neighbor who just watched this guy come and go and then you see the sister and then you see the police show up. I'd be like, oh, fuck, I, I watched a murder. Mm-hmm. That's so scary. So... You would not be leaving your front bay windows. Ever again. You'd be camped there. Ever again. You'd be some <laughs> rear window shit forever. That's how that goes. Holy cow. <laughs> so they had the neighbor like, is this the guy? They ID a photo and he's like, yeah, that's the guy. Um, and it's a color photo of Mark Branch. Pretty accurate. So there you go. And they have Scott ID him too. Is this Mark? Yeah, that's Mark. Again, never any question, never any mystery. No. No confusion. Nope. Everybody knows it's this kid. Yep. It is this kid. Yeah. No investigation. It just is this kid. Which is also like, I mean, true, but wow, what a leap. I've never read another case where they're like, we think it's this guy. And the cops were like, it's definitely that guy. We're not going to even look. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, like, they cops align to one person sometimes, like their suspect in their mind, but it's rarely just someone who's like mentioned off the cuff. It's usually someone a cop likes to fixate on. Mm-hmm. So Trooper Sicard and Leonard Crossman met with Scott Landry and his father at the police department. Remember, Scott Landry is like Mark's one friend. According to Trooper Sicard, Scott Landry provided the following information. Scott spent October 24th, 1988 with Mark Branch from about 8.15 until 11.30 a.m. At 8.15 a.m., Scott Landry picked up Mark at Mark's house in Scott's car to bring him to an 8.30 appointment at Massachusetts Rehab in Greenfield. Scott saw Mark Branch's gray Chevette at Mark's house at 112 Meadow Lane that morning when he picked him up. But Mark said he had no gas. And there was an air conditioner in the rear that required fixing and it was warm out. So Mark um, said he didn't want to drive. Scott Landry dropped Mark Branch off for his appointment. He saw Mark Branch at 915 next by Galvin's Liquor Store in Greenfield on the corner of Ames and School Street. They drove back to Mark's house together. They got the air conditioner from the back of Mark's car. I guess there was like a wall unit air conditioner in his car, so he didn't want to drive around with that. I thought it was warm. Never mind. They put the air conditioner in Scott's father's truck, which Scott had been driving. Both of them went in the truck to Scott's house at 15 Maple Street in Greenfield. They arrived between 9.40 and 9.50 in the a.m. According to Scott, from his interview with Trooper Sicard and Crossman, they went inside Scott's house and then they began to record MTV. Wow. <laughs> so you could go back and watch the videos, you know. That brings back memories. Right? I thought that was a fun detail. Yeah. At 10.07 a.m., Sharon called Scott. So Sharon, this is the victim in this case, called Scott the one friend. Scott answered, she was crying. She asked if Scott had a car. He told her he did not. He asked her if everything was okay, and she said that she was not sure. 
She said that she had tried to call her boyfriend, Chris Therian, at Greenfield High School, but he was not allowed to take her call. Scott told her how to start the car and to call, to call back if it would not start. According to Scott, she never called back. Okay, that's weird. So Mark, who was with Scott, would know she was in her house without a car. Mm-hmm. Mark Branch asked Scott who had called. Scott told him it was Sharon and that she had been able, unable to start her car. Mark asked why her parents had not brought her to school at Greenfield Community College. Scott told Mark that Sharon's parents were working and were not at home. So this is how Mark has all of this information. Mm-hmm. About 15 minutes later, Mark Branch went into Scott's father's bedroom to make a telephone call. According to Sicard, Scott said he came out a few minutes later. Scott asked him what was up, and Mark said only that he had to make a call. In the next 20 minutes, Mark asked Scott to take him home to get his car to pick up his check at Stop and Shop. Scott took Mark Branch home and left. According to Sicard, he and Crossman went to Stop and Shop during the evening of October 24th. They were informed by the manager on duty that Mark Branch was employed there, but had not picked up his check. Lies. According to the patrol officer, Scott Landry told him that he went home after dropping off Mark and took a nap. About noon on October 24th, Peter Jancic came to Scott's house and woke him up. He stayed about five minutes and left. Scott's girlfriend, Amy Politis, arrived at 12.30 p.m. Scott Landry told Sicard that he received a telephone call from his mother who told him that a girl had committed suicide. He went out to look for Cheryl's boyfriend, Peter Jancic, but he could not find him. Scott went to the high school and met with Chris Therian, Sharon's boyfriend. He told Therian that one of the twins had committed suicide, but he did not know which one. And this is her boyfriend. Mm -hmm. Therian and his mother then went to 138 South Shelburne Road, where Trooper Sicard met them. Scott Landry told Trooper Sicard that Mark's blue jacket was in the back of his father's truck when he dropped Mark off at his house. He told Mark to take it, but Mark said he would be by to pick it up later after he picked up his check at Stop and Shop. Mark Branch did not come back while Scott was home. Scott Landry further told Trooper Sicard that Mark Branch would at times wander aloud how it would feel to kill someone. Scott told Sicard that Mark religiously tapes and watches horror films and smut. He named Friday the 13th and Halloween. Scott said that Mark patterned his own life on characters from these films, including Jason from Friday the 13th and Freddy Krueger from Nightwear on Elm Street. Good luck with that. Scott told Sicard that Mark Branch owns seven hockey masks. Such masks were worn by Jason in the movie. According to Scott, Mark does not play hockey. (laughs) Good detail. He also has the same kind of combat boots and shirts that are worn by the main characters in some of these horror movies. See, like Michael Myers' heavy black boots, I'm guessing. Yeah. Scott Landry told Sicard that he and Mark had hung out together since third or fourth grade. Oh, and if you guys listen to the Tony Moran interview, those are uh, military boots. They're like Air Force boots. Anyway. He said Mark had attended a school for troubled kids and that Mark's mother had once told Scott that Mark had attempted suicide. That fact is in no other articles anywhere. Scott also said Mark had gone to Belmont State Hospital for about a year between his 16th and 18th birthdays. He also attended a special school in Northampton for young people with mental or emotional difficulties. Again, not included anywhere. Trooper Sicard called Northampton Center for Children and Family Services on Pomeroy Terrace in Northampton, and they confirmed that Mark Branch had been enrolled there and had graduated. Special school. Scott Landry told Trooper Sicard that Sharon and Cheryl Gregory often mocked him and made fun of him in his presence. Boo. Within the last week, Mark Branch had said to Scott that these two girls angered him. Scott Landry told Sicard that Sharon Gregory had taken photographs of Mark Branch and that Mark had told Scott that he wanted those photographs back. 
Detective Peter Skerritt returned to 138 South Shelburne Road after 11 p.m. on October 24th. He found two photographs of Mark Branch under a box on top of a desk in the deceased's room. So Sharon had those pictures. Detective Clark interviewed Amy Politis on October 24th. In the afternoon, Ms. Politis and Scott was Scott Landry's girlfriend. She is 18 and a student. According to Detective Clark, Ms. Politis told him that she knows Mark Branch. She said further that Mark was an admirer of the movie Friday the 13th and of Jason. Ms. Politis told Detective Clark that Scott Landry and Mark Branch would watch violent movies, such as Friday the 13th at home, and Mark talked about living out a fantasy of being Jason, the character from the series of the Friday the 13th movies. She also said Mark had shown her items he had purchased through the mail about Jason from the movies and that he kept these items in his room. These items included dolls of Jason, the hockey mask used by Jason, and videotapes of the movies with Jason. Detective Peter Skerritt spoke with Thomas Smith, MD, who conducted an autopsy of the deceased. This is also, you can't find the autopsy report. It doesn't exist, which freedom of information, almost all of them are everywhere. Mm -hmm. Dr. Smith said, upon first impression that the instrument which made the stab wounds in the deceased was likely a single-edged knife with a blade of approximately one to one and a half inches. That is actually a little blade. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, wide, sorry, blade width. Still. And the blade length was between four and five inches, which is fine size, but it's not a huge knife. It's a kitchen knife. Yeah. Death resulted from multiple stab wounds, numbering about two dozen. That's a lot. Detective Scarrett saw the deceased's motor vehicle license, which showed a date of birth as 3-26-1970. At 8.20 a.m. on October 25th, 1988, I, Joseph Lachance, received a call from Diane Tuller of Avery Road, Buckland, Massachusetts. She is an employee of Crocker Answering Service, and she stated that a gray Chevrolet Chevette with Massachusetts registration plates 696NYA was parked off the road on Avery Road near the Wilder Place. So that's his car. And this is the next day. So they found his car the next day, but not him. And he wasn't far. Officers were dispatched to the area. The car was located and secured while this affidavit was prepared. Thereafter, I received a telephone call from Detective John Zakowski of the Greenfield Police Department. He stated that he had interviewed Francis Wilder of Avery Road, Buckland, Massachusetts. Mr. Wilder said he left his house at 11.40 a.m. on October 24th and returned at approximately 1.45 on the same date. When he returned, the gray Chevette was there. So by 1.45 p.m. day of, which is right after the killing occurred, his car was parked there, which means he died immediately afterwards, according to this guy and this information. Heavy quotes on that one, because again, I can't back anything up. There's no, there's nowhere to back it up. No, without being disrespectful Mm -hmm. to any actual, the, the actual victim and to some things that can be probably verified. So much of this story feels like fiction. Yeah. I don't know if that's just because of the lack of documentation or verifiability, or it's tie-ins with the movie world and the pop culture world that just make it seem that way. Yeah. Here's the thing. <laughs> okay. Before I, su- before I sum up our thoughts, because that's where the affidavit ends. Obviously, mm-hmm. that's probable cause to find Mark Branch. Sure. They're looking for Mark Branch. They found his car. That's where we're done there. This is a quote from the Daily Star that it was too good not to read about them finding him. So police managed to pick up a lead that started a manhunt for Branch over a month later with officers closing in on him over the course of a month. Investigating a nearby abandoned slaughterhouse, 
Police found signs of Branch's presence with a crude drawing of Jason Voorhees on the walls. By November 28, 1988, officers had managed to track down and find Branch after seeing his car abandoned on the edge of a forest where Branch was found dead and hanging from a tree. Okay, so this is perfect because when when I was looking at this story, Uh there's a couple ways, different ways you can look at this. This kid was inspired to do something awful by a piece of art. Sure. Many terrible things have happened that have also inspired art. Yeah. And that cycle keeps rolling around and around and around and around. And you see it in the news media with Mm -hmm. people sensationalizing things. Yeah. You can, you know, go back and look at every single, you know, horror movie, lots of popular songs uh, that have all inspired murder. Or have been inspired by, by murder. murder. Yeah, there's And it goes that. back and back and back and back and back. Seemingly to no end to where like, I have to assume there's a deposit of, you know, skeletons somewhere, you know, some fossil record. Yeah. And it, it's like this murder happened between these two cavemen, you know, a long, long time ago. And there's a cave painting of a circle on the wall next to them and it's crossed out and like a cave painting of a triangle is drawn next to it. Like this piece of art caused this fight even that long ago. Yep. And and it's hard to distinguish between what came before and what came after. It's like a chicken and egg type scenario. And you see this all throughout pop culture history, Mm -hmm. you know, think about Tipper Gore. And, you know, and the parental advisory stickers and like saying like kids shouldn't, take in certain types of media. There is so much science that talks about how that is not true. But yes, Exactly. Because that. this art, mm-hmm. it, it's just us at yeah. the end of the day. It's, it exists. It's real. It's something that we think about. And you can't just say, well, these movies are detrimental to kids or to people in general because they cause these things to happen. No, these things very much are real. And they do, you know, some people make these choices to kill. And I believe these people will look for justifications anywhere they can find them, whether it's in art or somewhere else. You know, so like, do I think that these movies cause violent things to happen? No, I don't don't think so. I think that it's all wrapped up into one big ball that you can't distinguish one thing from another. We are our own art. For sure. And also... He was someone who had whatever was going on inside Mark's branch, Mark Branch's head. Mm-hmm. They're going to find inspiration for something like that somewhere. Yeah. He is, you, you couldn't have put him in a plastic egg and kept him forever mm-hmm. away from everything in the world, every media outlet, because Halloween and Friday the 13th are by far, like, they're far from the only places you'll see like glamorized murder. You see glamorized murder on the news. And you definitely also did in 1988. And there have been murders that have been committed that have been inspired by news coverage sure. of murder. Absolutely. You could just fall down that, you know, it's endless. telescoping rabbit hole forever. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the assumption that these movies are what made him do that is, I frankly, a reach. Yeah, but we Uh both grew up with that sentiment. 
Yeah. The whole satanic panic thing. Oh, God, yes. Oh, Lord. But um, I did find a little bit of a a newspaper article. Again, they don't really give much of a date. So November 28th is about the approximate date of when they found his body. It's going to be different in a bunch of uh, different locations. But they did find, here's how Mark Branch's body was actually found. Now, this is along the same stretch of highway where they found his car, which is wooded on one side at least. And there was a hunter in those woods who stumbled upon the partially decomposed remains of Mark Branch hanging from a tree. So initially, when police found the body, because of course he called the damn cops, good on him, and they came out and found him. They said, well, we have no idea how long he's been dead. And you wouldn't at that point in time. I mean, unless you remember that his car was on the side of that road like two hours later, but they seem to conveniently forget that at that point in time. However, after the medical examiner looks at him and they go back in their records, they say, well, clearly he murdered this poor woman because he didn't like what she had to say about him. And then he was so overwrought with guilt that he drove out to the woods, walked into the woods and hung himself, Mm. hanged himself. I hate that. (laughs) Um, But we don't know with what. Mm -hmm. What did he hang himself with? What did he have? What did he use? Mm -hmm. What did he, where's the murder weapon? Where's anything? I struggle to find any, any like really good concrete evidentiary information like at all. And this this one like compiled list of documents is really the only thing I could find that had any newspaper articles in it. And I don't see, I truly don't see anything that's like, here, Hunter finds more than deer. Good headline. Good headline. Oh, the New York Times wants me to pay. Never mind. <laughs> and in the age of the internet, I know this is an older case, but like yeah. in the age of the internet, it's odd to come across something that is so unverifiable. It is very much odd. It really is because especially the true crime is in a fucking golden age right now. Yeah. People, it's all over the place. People, you, you'll you trip over it. And so usually you're going to want to have to avoid certain graphic details about cases. Like I try to avoid sharing links that will take people to things they don't want to see because they are so easy to find. Yeah. There's no like crime scene pictures of this. There is no pictures of Mark. There's no pictures of the tree or the location or his car. And normally you can find almost anything. I really don't see any of that here. It's either very strange or it's not strange at all. Yeah. Mm. It's just, sorry, I'm like kind of blown away. Because the other thing with that, with the lack of information here, is that this case is covered because of its pop culture tie-in. So it is out there in the world. It is everywhere in the world. It's not, there's no lack of it. But that's what they focus on. Yeah. That aspect of it. If you want to see photos that go with it, it's a picture of Jason Voorhees and then like school photographs of of, uh, Sharon and Mark. That's it. That's it. And frankly, the school photograph that they provide of her, um, her relatives in like comment sections, because I read everything, have said she hates. So I'm going to try and not share that one if I don't have to. But anyway. Admirable. That is our Friday the 13th inspired case. You guys can think what you will. In my opinion, I, I don't think he took his own life. I just. Possible we had a lynching. 
Yeah. I just don't, if this was a wish fulfillment for him, why then would you immediately die? If he idolizes these people who come back time and time again and, and kind of get away with it, unless that wasn't actually, what well, wasn't actually Mark Branch they found and he's still wandering those woods with a kitchen knife. Evil dies tonight. And that's where we end this story. <laughs> <laughs> I choose to think that. So, a toast? Toast. Ah, to Sharon. Yay. To you, John, thank you for, for co-hosting with me and Leslie Stead. I appreciate you. And to Leslie and the baby. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. And um, uh, if you're our patron and you're new at that and you haven't heard your name yet, it's because Leslie does that. <laughs> and we'll get to all of you when she is back in the driver's seat. Soon. Very soon. I'm sure. We no rush she on her. She misses all of you. And we miss her. But we want her to do whatever she needs to do. We will be here waiting when she comes back. And if we chose to profile the wrong individual... We, we would, would be, be dead. dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more.